What can studies involving twins show us about a plant-based diet? Who is getting their voice heard at the COP28 climate summit? Animal agriculture or vegan lobbyists? And what have you all had to say about our last 12 episodes? That's right, it's listener mailbag time. Anyway, that's enough of the falafel. I'm Richard. I'm Anthony. And this is episode 12 of Vegan Week. Thanks for joining us for episode 12 of Vegan Week, produced in partnership with Fire and Flow Coffee. If you love great coffee, want to spend your money with vegan businesses and love a cheeky discount, head over to fireandflowcoffee.co.uk, enter in the discount code FALAFEL10, so that's FALAFEL10, enter that at the checkout, you will get yourself a sweet 10% off your order. Phil and Callum love the Enough of the Falafel community and they can't wait to share their fantastic tea and coffee with you. I got a lovely email from Shah this week saying how much she's enjoying the podcast, which is great, isn't it? Yes, that's brilliant. And she's not the only one. Many of you have got in touch over the last few weeks and months, letting us know your thoughts on the podcast. Thank you everyone who has done so. We read every single message and today we're featuring three bits of correspondence that have got us thinking. We'll take a deep dive into the listener mailbag in the second half of the show. Yes, but in every episode of Vegan Week, we always make the first section of our show a rundown and commentary of our top 10 vegan news stories from the week. Right, enough of the falafel. Let's get into it. Okay, as per usual, we have selected 10 new stories that have been released in the last seven days or so, all of which relate to veganism, animal rights or outcomes for animals. And to start off, we have a a few studies published this week. Yeah, and let's start with a real biggie. This one has been absolutely everywhere this week. We we get this sometimes in researching the show. You'll get a story that just no, no matter where you search, it pops up. So for this is from Stanford University in the US. Twin research indicates that a vegan diet improves cardiovascular health. So this is the news that a Stanford medicine-led trial of identical twins comparing vegan and omnivore diets found that a vegan diet improves overall cardiovascular health. Hooray for us! In a study with 22 pairs of identical twins, Stanford Medicine researchers and their colleagues have found that a vegan diet improves cardiovascular health in as little as eight weeks. Both diets were healthy, replete with vegetables, legumes, fruits and whole grains, and void of sugars and refined starches. However, The vegan diet was obviously entirely plant-based, so no meat, animal products like egg or milk. Don't know why I'm explaining that. Hopefully most listeners understand what a vegan diet might consist. If not, welcome to the show. Great to have you with us. The omnivore diet, however, included chicken, fish, eggs, cheese, dairy and other animal sourced products. And for those of you not aware, that is therefore not a vegan diet. During the first four weeks, a meal service delivered 21 meals per week, seven breakfasts, seven lunches, seven dinners for the remaining four weeks participants prepared their own meals. Now, the participants with a vegan diet had significantly lower low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, LDLC, we'll call it from now on. 
they also have lower insulin levels and lower body weight, all of which are associated with improved cardiovascular health. That was in comparison to the omnivore participants, that is. Because the participants already had healthy LDLC levels, there was less room for improvement, of course, um, and the authors have acknowledged that. They've speculated that participants who had even higher baseline levels of LDLC would show an even greater change, although the study doesn't necessarily show that. The vegan participants also showed about a 20% drop in fasting insulin. Higher insulin levels is a risk factor for developing diabetes. The vegans also lost an average of 4.2 more pounds than the omnivores which is usually associated with uh, being healthier, but of course not always. Based on these results and thinking about longevity, most of us would benefit from going to a more plant-based diet, one of the researchers said. Rich, really compelling results there. And the, the fact that they're twins really kind of uh, seems to drill home that there's there's no bias. It's, you know, purely science. It's, it's a pure win for the vegan diet. It is. It is a pure win. It's something that... I don't know. I'll probably share with everyone I know. And it's it's yet another study proving that the whole food plant-based diet is the way to go if you are looking to improve your health. Mm. Yeah, it is. And I, I think it's, it's great to have those sort of... The word extreme has come into my mind. I, I don't mean it's an extreme in a radical way, but it is at the very healthiest end of the spectrum, isn't it? And I'd be very interested to see a, a twin study done with perhaps a more moderate version of a plant-based diet and see what the difference is there. I'm not I'm not saying that that's better than a whole foods plant-based diet. I'm just saying some people might feel that that's unattainable for them, particularly at the start of their vegan journey. Though I'm not saying it's not. I'm, I'm sounding very contradictory here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I understand what you mean, but... I would like to say also that this is a study and we see on social media many times all these people that with no background, no uh, big knowledge about diets, promoting low carb, the meat-based, uh, get muscles and all these sorts of posts of people claiming they know what they're doing, how they got you know to the stage they are. And in fact, we need to tone down these celebrities, if you will, or or influencers unrealistic to what um, science says. And this is a, a very, very clear example of what science says. I mean, one of the things that also I would add is uh, they were already healthy. Mm. So obviously you won't see that much of an improvement. But can you imagine if we got this sort of studies with a baseline of people that maybe are not so healthy to start with. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, I consider myself reasonably healthy, but at the same time, I could definitely improve and I would definitely be up for having a four-week period where uh, a Meals on Wheels service is delivering me perfectly balanced vegan food or already made for me for four weeks. That would be enough incentive for me. Where do we sign? Yeah, exactly. Just relating to what you were saying there about influencers and celebrities, which kind of... Um, giving their opinions without necessarily having that much backing them. I would agree with that, but I think we've we've got to hold ourselves up and say there are plenty of vegans who do that too, aren't there? And at, at, actually, if we're saying that we, we shouldn't necessarily be paying too much heed to, to one, then we probably shouldn't the other. But I, I guess the point you're making is that 
we, we should be focusing more on, on science and research to, to inform our decisions here. Well, yes, and I see a very big difference. Usually, those that promote a vegan diet as an active, uh, as activism, they do so mainly because they've read the research and they know that that's the way to convince people to go vegan. And they usually they do not have that um, desire to monetize what they're saying. They might come from a different background. I'm not saying everyone, obviously. I can't talk um, for everyone. But if you hear Joey Capstrong, if you hear uh, Earthling Ed, which all Earthling Ed usually moves more into the moral spectrum, but they, they'll try to do their activism with science backing them and a way to convince people why they should go vegan. While if you see other people, they're trying to monetize their diet and subscribe to my diet by my meal planner. So there's a, there's a business element there. So I don't think it's a, um, an equal comparison or a fair comparison. Um, I hear what you're saying. I don't know for sure. Let's be really scientific and, and, you know, mathematical about this. I don't know that we know for sure that more vegans are doing so in a genuine way and that more people who aren't vegan are being disingenuous and actually trying to sell things. And like, there's a very well-known podcast run by a plant-based host or somebody who calls himself plant-based, Rich Roll, who is selling his meal planner very actively through through that. So I, I think both both things are possible, aren't they? But um, I, I'm going to choose to take away what you're saying, that we should focus more on studies and research rather than just, oh, this person has a YouTube account, so I'll follow their dietary advice. Um, although we can learn, you know, we can learn from people, can't we? Um, and our, our whole podcast premise is on actually, you know, giving people a voice and, and listening and, and we can learn from it. But. We can learn from people and it's even more important to learn who to learn from. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Final thing I'd like to say on this is great that the study showed that people following the plant-based diet had massive changes really quickly but I am a little concerned that veganism could be perceived as a quick fix for your diet. And if it if it becomes so, then that's, from my point of view, that should always be incidental. Like it's not a quick fix. And um, for me, it's certainly not about diet. It's about something much, much bigger. But either way, our hearts are feeling great in more ways than one there with, with that first story. But let's not get ahead of ourselves because this next story not only seems to put a dampener on things, but also almost contradicts what we heard last week about plant-based eating and general all-cause mortality. Rich, over to you. Yes, from medicalnews.net, large-scale study finds no mortality benefit from vegetarian diets in US adults. A brief report published in the Journal of Health, Population and Nutrition describes the effects of vegetarian diets on all-cause mortality in adults in the United States. No significant impact of vegetarian diets on all-cause mortality risk was observed in a US population of middle-aged and older adults. Now, this goes against the study that we reported last week, which reported a 21% improvement on all-cause mortality for those on vegan diets. So really the question is, are the differences here because of the study design or because we're talking about vegetarians in this week's study rather than vegans? Well, I was going to say, I guess we don't know, do we? We're, we're just going to be hypothesizing. But do you have an initial thought, Richard? 
well, clearly vegetarians and vegans are not the same, same right? So it's clearly normal to see differences about uh, in the um, in the study. Yeah, I think as well, this one is a study, whereas last week's story was an analysis of 37 meta-analyses. So like that's looking at a much, much, much larger piece of data so i know it's going to sound like i'm being biased but i'm more inclined to to trust the study that we heard last week whose conclusion was that actually a vegan diet did improve all-cause mortality so just looking at it from a scientific point of view i mean personally i don't really care i know that sounds a bit ambivalent but the fact is the conclusion of this study is that whether you follow a vegetarian diet or an omnivore diet it didn't change things which means that a vegetarian diet is no worse. And so therefore, I would assume, I would hope that a vegan diet is no worse. And actually, if we're advocating following a vegan lifestyle, I kind of feel like, well, if it's better to do so from a health point of view, then great, what a lovely bonus. But all I want to know is it's not any worse. Yeah, the other thing I would say is, is, do we really need vegetarian studies? Do we really need them? (laughs) I mean, well, no, it's all I could find this week, Richard. <laughs> I'm not saying from your point of view, but I'm saying from the study point of view. Yeah. Um, do we really need it? I mean, you could eat every day cheese and eggs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And your diet would be really poor. So mm. come on. Yeah, you know. I, I, I think this, what we're going to see, hopefully, over the years is an increase of, of medical studies in, in terms of comparing diets including more and more from a vegan perspective. I mean, this study, like it involved like 100,000 participants. It was a big, long-term study. And 99% of the participants were omnivores. But because of the size of the study and the, the, the number of participants, they were able to get data from 1,000 vegans. Um, well, no, probably not even 1,000, was it? I think it was probably more like a 200. I think it was 0.2%. So there were still 200 vegans in there, but because it's a longitudinal study, there weren't that many in the sample size. So they included vegetarians too. And I, I think as time goes on and there are more people who are vegan and there's more of an awareness of vegans, then we're going to kind of be more involved in these studies, if that makes sense. But I think we're still experiencing a bit of a backlog from a time where there weren't that many of us. So uh, we have to have to include vegetarians yeah. too. <laughs> now, thankfully, we have a lot of other studies with a far clearer case for following a plant-based diet. However, we can also look at how we market vegan food to catch people's interest too, can't we, Anthony? Well, yeah, according to one study, this one was reported in our favourite, the Daily Mail, uh, and the headline is thus, scientists claim we could rename vegan burgers juicy American burgers to make them more appealing to meat lovers. So the new study has been published in Elsevier journal Food Quality and Preference, using names like Juicy American or Smoky Aussie for vegan burgers can make people choose them over meat equivalents, scientists in Australia found. Other appealing names for vegan food included Juicy American Burger, Juicy Smoky American Burger, Delicious Aussie Burger, Aussie Sausages and Buttery Mash, 
scrumptious, succulent Aussie parmigiana. Um, altering the names of plant-based meals on restaurant menus significantly increases the food's appeal, said the study author Danielle Green at the University of Queensland. So, from an initial online survey of 532 participants, they identified a range of alternative names for classic Australian pub dishes, such as burgers, lasagna and parmigiana. The second part of the study involved a simulated restaurant experience where 312 participants ordered one of four meals based off the name assigned to each, either appealing or unappealing, and as expected, having descriptive adjectives in the name of dishes made people more inclined to order them, whether or not things were plant-based, it's worth noting. So adding an adjective like juicy or succulent did make it more likely for people to order them, regardless of whether it was vegan or not. However, the final part of the study included 898 participants. They were all separated into different groups of meat eaters who were surveyed on how the appealing names affected their choices. And overall, researchers found that dish names that highlighted food flavour, texture and place of origin can positively influence the appeal of plant-based meals. Crucially, meat eaters opted for the vegan food with a descriptive name when the name for the meat version was more boring. So even if you're a meat eater, you're more likely to eat a plant-based meal than a meat meal if the plant-based meal has a really good adjective, but the meat meal is described as boring. This wasn't the case across all groups of meat eaters, however, because, for example, uncompromising meat eaters were less likely to opt for the vegan options despite a name change. In a sense there, Rich, it seems to be saying that marketing is more important than the actual food you're eating. It doesn't surprise me in a way. I mean, when you see all the ads, when you see all the marketing engineering that goes into how to make people decide what they eat and how to influence their behaviour, it, it doesn't surprise me, honestly. I mean... Oh, it depresses me, though. Well... That, that's that's how life is. I'm, 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 I agree with you. It's depressing, but it's like pension schemes. It's you have to opt out. Okay. You you you're not given the choice to opt in or opt out. If you want to opt out, uh, you have to say it. As in, we have to opt out of this mindset. We need to understand what triggers people to buy. And despite the fact that we might not like that people behave the way they do, understanding how we behave, it's so important to change how things are. Because if you if you go to a McDonald's and you just say, please eat vegan burgers, probably you won't succeed very much. While if you change the name to make it appealing, and one of the things that's very important is, do I owe the food from groups I do not believe I belong to? So there's always a sense of belonging when you do things in life. So if you say, am I vegan? Mm. No. Do I buy a vegan burger? No, because I don't belong to that group, yeah. right? Yeah, so yeah. the way to do it is to find ways in which you can identify yourself with the group you belong to, yeah. um, even though we, we might not like it. Yes. Uh, we would like people to say, just buy the vegan burger, just try it. But Unfortunately, we need all this marketing engineering. Yeah, but I, and and like you say, we might we might not like it, but actually, if we're trying to be strategic to better advocate for animals, it might suggest that instead of calling your business the vegan diner, actually calling it you know the 
Louisiana diner or the, you know, whatever name of the, the town that you live in, though you've missed an opportunity to say the word vegan, like if it gets more people in there consuming the products and becoming inculcated in the lifestyle, then maybe maybe it's better. Yeah. And just a quick one for you and for our listeners, because this, this might be an interesting poll. If you had the choice of going to two vegan stands on a fair and one was called heaven food and the other one was called hell's food which one do you think you'd go for and that will give you a bit of an insight of how you choose what um what triggers you to 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 eat and what to choose i mean would you go for the heaven or would you go for the hell i'd i'd say maybe seven times out of ten i'd go for the hell but at the moment i'm trying to uh, you know reduce my waistline in in the build-up to christmas so i might go to the heaven one this week but <laughs> i know but we've chosen the naughty option psychologically hell is related yes. to crossing barriers to be you know a bit a mm. bit naughty while the other one is good so there's an element of that but anyway that that probably is for another discussion indeed well let's let's move on to some slightly worrying news now from animal agriculture this week yes from farming uk devon commercial poultry farm confirms outbreak of bird flu Highly pathogenic avian influenza has been confirmed in commercial poultry on a farm in Devon, making it the second bird flu case confirmed this week alone. A 3km protection zone and 10km surveillance zone has been declared by DEFRA following the outbreak near Cranbrook, East Devon. This means movement restrictions within these zones. For example, poultry, carcasses, eggs, used poultry litter and manure to prevent any further spread of disease. It follows a case of bird flu in broiler breeders in North England five days before the day of recording today's show. The UK government's risk level remains low for poultry, but farmers and keepers are still being urged to remain vigilant. However, Scientists have warned against complacency as the virus could increase in the UK this winter as it spreads in Europe. Well, this is a bit of a worrying news, isn't it? It's worrying. And I think that, I mean, obviously, you know, from a compassionate point of view, our first concern is for the animals being affected by it at the moment. But almost more worrying for me is the fact that the UK government is saying, oh no, this is a low risk, despite the fact scientists are saying, no, 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 don't be complacent. Like it, it, it worries me that actually our experience of a pandemic recently with COVID-19, like it might even be making us complacent against these things. It might be the case that we're saying, oh, well, it, at the moment, it doesn't seem as bad as COVID, therefore we don't need to do anything. Um, which, I mean, on so many levels is would be shocking. I know I'm speculating, but do do you have that impression, Rich, that there's possibly complacency here? Yes, absolutely. I think there's complacency. And I think either they know about the risks, but they don't want to alarm population because we had a very interesting sociological experiment during COVID in a way. So they might not want to raise the alarms and get people scared. On the other hand, if if really they, they think it's low level or it's not, well, very compelling at the moment, it worries me. I would recommend everyone to read the book by Michael Greger called How to Survive a Pandemic. And he highlights what the possible future pandemics and the risks are of avian flu. I don't know if this is the H5N1 strain, 
But honestly, Anthony, we had the case of swine flu recently. A person got uh, swine flu. Yes, I saw that. Um, luckily for that person, I believe that it had um, mild symptoms. But come on, I mean, it's just a few m- mutations away, or that at least is what many people say, or people you know in the scientific community, just a few mutations away to become the next pandemic. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, you never hear of tofu flu, do you? Well, not yet anyway. Sounds terrifying. (laughs) You don't need to give antibiotics to lettuce, do you? (laughs) Not the last time I checked. Okay, I think we have uh, some follow-up from the last uh, week's leading story, do we? Yes, we do. Again, from the animal reader, dog farmers clash with police at protest over dog meat ban in South Korea. So following the news last week that the South Korean government intends to ban the dog meat trade by 2027 in the country, about 200 farmers protested the proposed dog meat ban in South Korea on Thursday. They gathered near the presidential office in Seoul to demand the government to scrap the plan to ban dog meat. We can't agree with the idea that it is barbaric because all countries that have had the tradition of animal farming have at some point eaten dogs, and there are still countries where it's done, the head of the dog meat farm committee said. Now, the farmers clashed with police, who stopped them from crossing the street to move closer to the presidential office, and three people were arrested. So the ruling party of South Korea's President Yoon Suk-yeol introduced a bill to ban the breeding and sale of dogs for consumption by 2027. And in addition, it mentioned that businesses that were forced to close would receive financial compensation. Now, that is more information than we had last week, because last week it was reported that they would receive support, but we weren't sure what kind of support. So it sounds like it's financial compensation they'll be receiving. A 22-year-old resident who asked to remain anonymous told the news agency Reuters, from observing dog meat farmers and the environment of dog farms, I think people, including myself, opposed eating dog meat because there are problems with the slaughter method. Now, Rich, there's two or three new bits of information we've got there. I've I've got some thoughts myself. What are your initial reactions to that? So my initial thought here is, well, first of all, this is what they've done in the past and what many countries have done in the past. Now, can we talk about the evolution concept and how it doesn't really matter what you've done in the past. You can learn from the past, but obviously we need to move forward. Unfortunately, we had slavery in the past. Unfortunately, women were not able to vote. So it's we, we wouldn't say like, we couldn't, we wouldn't go to, to the extent to say, oh, but women were not allowed to vote in the past. So can we take that right away or mm. can we go back to slavery? Mm. No, we need to move forward as a society. They do make a very good point of saying, well, other countries eat animals. Yes, and we're all also against that. But to say that something has been done in the past, it's no measure to say we need to change it moving forward. Yeah, there are parallels with, with slavery, actually, in that they're offering financial compensation to farms that are closing, much in the same way that, that slave owners were recompensed for loss of possessions, as it was horrifically called when when slavery was abolished. I, in a way, I I can see their point with saying that well, other country, every other country still has animal farming. From that logic, 
I can completely agree with them and saying, well, who are you to say that this is barbaric? You're, you're still killing animals. I, I don't think that's quite the point that they're making, but it is a, it's a valid point, I think, isn't it? Rich, what do you think about the the argument that it's it's more barbaric because of the slaughter method? One, one resident who remained anonymous brought that up. Do you think that's a, a valid argument for saying, well, this industry should go before other animal farming? If... if um, if the slaughter method is is perceived as more barbaric, I think it's generally electrocution that that is used as a a way of ending the dog's lives. I think there's no humane way to take away someone else's life. Mm. So you know we're discussing here. We we wouldn't say is there a way to kidnap someone in a humane way. No. There's not. There's no, no good way to doing that. No. So I, I get that from a from a, a philosophical and moral point of view. However, we've got a country in the world right now who is saying we're about to abolish the exploitation of this animal in this way, and we're doing so on the grounds that the method of slaughter is inhumane. Like, do we get behind that or not? It's nonsense. Even, no, even, no, even if it's That's what I'm trying to say. But, but what I'm saying is, do we therefore say, no, I don't agree with you? And then they'll go, oh, you don't agree? Well, in that case, you can carry on killing the dogs then. Because that was the only reason we were going to do it. Because we we thought that we were killing them in an inhumane way. But all the vegans are saying, no, no, it's no, fine. There are two different things here. If whatever reason they put to stop doing it, it's okay as long as they stop, yeah. right? If if we're looking at the morality of the correct way of killing an animal, we're going down the wrong route because that enables whitewashing or, or conscience uh, washing that when you kill a cow or when you kill any other animal, the method of killing justifies the killing, and that's never the case. So if now they said, instead of killing a dog with the way they do it, which I believe it's electrocution, mm. It's done with a knife, or it's done with stunning them first, or whatever. That wouldn't justify taking that life. So, no, if, if they're stopping for that reason, well, for now, as long as they stop, it's good. But the way you kill someone would never be, should never be a justification for saying, because that opens the door to say there's proper ways of doing it, and there's not. Yeah, yeah. We're going into, into the welfare territory mm, here. Yeah, and it's... <laughs> It's a really interesting story and there's there's lots of back and forth and, and lots of contradiction too. None summed up more by the fact that at the protest, the dog farmers, some of them had dogs in crates with them. And you just think, look, if, you, if you're trying to make a case that your industry should remain, don't turn up at the protest with dogs in tiny cages. Like, what are you doing? Anyway, we, we probably ought to move on because we do have five other, five other stories to cover. Um, and talking of bans and restrictions, Rich, you've now got news of uh, something a bit closer to home that was kept very hush-hush until this week. Yes, from The Telegraph. I blocked schools from imposing vegetarian diets when I was health secretary, says Steve Barclay. So, this is the news that the UK's former health secretary and current environment secretary ensured meat could be eaten in schools to protect children's health and farmers' livelihoods. Mr Barclay, who now serves as the environment secretary, told farmers that during his time in the Department of Health, he stopped proposals to allow schools to stop serving meat products 
in school canteens. In his first speech since taking up the role at the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, Mr Barclay attempted to assure the agricultural sector that he was on the side of the farmers. Speaking at the Country Land and Business Association conference in London, Mr Barclay cited his track record in government and told attendees, I have always been clear that we need to protect our farmers. Now, that was a bit of a unfortunate, is it, Anthony? Well, I mean, in a sense, it it it, it shows he's attempting to curry favour with with farmers and and those who are sort of pro animal agriculture, arguably. But in so doing, I think he's he's shown that a lot of these things are done in in quite a shady way in in politics. And I I don't know whether that's been picked up on by by others, but I certainly look at it as a oh right, you're just secretly trying to block schools from from adopting vegetarian diets. Interestingly, reading the story, it, it wasn't a proposal that all schools go vegetarian. It was if a school wanted to go completely vegetarian, they could have put forward a motion to say, this is what we want to do. This is why we want to do it. Can we do so? And he was basically blocking them to even start the conversation, which I don't know about you. That seems quite draconian to me. You're not even allowed to suggest it. I mean, how can you not allow even a, a discussion about it, even contemplating it? Mm. That that seems completely authoritarian. Yeah, and and the, the whole proposal was that well, parents need to be consulted before making such a move in a school. So if the local parents are backing a move for a school to to be vegetarian. And the local authority has said that it wants to do it. Like, in a sense, who are the government to say that that this isn't allowed? Like, if everyone else is saying it's fine, just on the premise that, oh, it, it might be damaging the meat and dairy industry. Or he said it in uh, under the guise of health, because it was when he was health secretary. And, oh, this is going to be damaging people's health. But presumably, the schools and parents one of the reasons they would be suggesting this would be for health benefits. Certainly, I can imagine them suggesting that rather than saying, oh, it's for animal welfare reasons. Like their primary argument is going to be for health. So to not even let them have the discussion, well, it just shows what this government's Ooh. like in this country, doesn't it? Do you smell that? <laughs> yeah, it's the lobbying industry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know what will reassure us that politicians have got things under control. Let's hear some stories from the COP28 Climate Conference, shall we? Ah, Richard, your sarcasm is back. Indeed, from Veconomist, plant-based activists take a seat at COP28 whilst big meat and dairy also arrive in full force to launch counterattacks. So... So for those of you who are not aware, COP28, the United Nations Climate Conference, started last week in Dubai and it will continue until December the 12th. Veconomist reports that whilst work is being done by climate and food activists at the event to bring the urgency addressing food system change into focus, the meat and dairy industry is also in town sharpening tools in preparation for what could be effectively the biggest greenwashing operation the world has ever seen. That's a veg economist's words, not mine, although uh, I possibly agree. One example is from the Global Meat Alliance, the GMA, describing the meat lobby's desire to push their, quote, scientific evidence in terms of the effect of animal agriculture on the planet and climate. 
The documents reveal the meat industry's plans to tell its story and tell it well at the event. Now, on the other side, various groups representing plant-based food will be present with the aim of ensuring delegates eat within a daily food budget in line with a Paris Agreement goal of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees C. Plant-based initiatives are in town as well, including PXB Lifestyle, Roots and Rolls, Prunch and Wilder Than Moon. To finish this segment, I've got a quote from Nusa Urbancic, the CEO of the campaign group, the Changing Markets Foundation, who are at COP28. Nusa says... Any credible action to reduce emissions in the food sector will inevitably lead to a reduction in the total volume of meat and dairy products produced. The industry is terrified of that and has been deploying multiple tactics to delay the inevitable. Not a feel-good story, Rich, in a sense, although it depends how you look at it. I mean, the fact that plant-based stuff and, and people campaigning on behalf of the climate and the environment, the fact that people are at the table having those discussions that's that's good isn't it we just we just rather there wasn't the opposition from from meat and dairy industries i'm really curious to know what what their studies say who's made them who subsidized them and what they're comparing things i mean are we comparing apples with pears or or what um mm. it, it's not a surprise that the meat industry feels threatened. Um, I think this is a clear example that they're terrified. They feel threatened and they'll do whatever it takes to make sure they keep their, their share of the industry and, and the market. So it, it's not a surprise. Now, the real question here is, will evidence prevail or interests? Yeah. And, and, and to what degree are, are people listening and who are they listening to? I mean, it's it's slightly worrying that you've got, though you've got the UK Prime Minister, you've got King Charles and the Foreign Secretary all attending from the UK, they're all taking separate private jets to arrive, which suggests that climate control is is not their primary objective. I I, I don't know whether you saw that, Rich, the fact that they're all travelling separately in separate private jets. Uh, Yes, but I think it's on one hand is disgusting, but on the other hand, I feel it. It's kind of a distraction, right? It's kind of we can't focus on that because I've heard a lot of people mentioning, "Oh, they're all travelling on private jets," without taking into account what themselves are eating. You know, so I'm not saying this is a distraction, but yeah, yeah. If we won't get them aligned, we will not get them aligned uh, they will not travel by commercial airplanes they they won't so even if it's even if it's not right i hope the f- whole thing about cop28 will not be they flew on private jets but it's like let's talk to the point and after we can discuss about the jets after but let's let's get meat to stop you know the meat industry to stop yeah i i completely agree with you i think from a the media's point of view like the the conference hadn't started at the which at the point at which that was being reported so there kind of wasn't any content to give other than the way that people had been transported and it does i mean it makes me really angry the fact that you've got a government that's saying oh come on everyone car share it's like car share Look at how you're traveling, for goodness sake. Agreed. But yeah, I, I guess time will tell. And, and like we've said, the, 
the conference goes on until the, the middle of December, basically. So uh, hopefully in a couple of weeks, we'll have some positive stories to share about it. Let's let's look at one example of the meat industry's pitches in Dubai. It made it into Farming UK this week. Rich, you've got details of this one. Yes, I have. So this story comes under the headline, Scotch lamb served at Dubai's COP28 as sector I's lucrative market. So this is the news that Quality Meat Scotland estimates that the Middle East could have significant worth to the Scottish sheep industry. In a special COP28 dinner, guests will be treated to lamb from Woodhurt Brothers in Aberdeenshire, which has become the first company to receive accreditation to supply the Middle East market with lamb. Lamb is hugely popular in this region, and in recent years the Middle East has imported an annual average of £571 million worth of sheep meat. Tom Gibson, Director of Business Development at Quality Meat Scotland, has said that the dinner in Dubai, ahead of the world's largest conversation about the environment, will be a fantastic platform to remind decision makers about the taste of Scottish lamb, but also Scotland's story as the most sustainable place to produce it. <sighs> Anthony, where do we start? Well, I think we start at the end, that ridiculous sentence, Scottish lamb is the most sustainable thing to be eaten in the Middle East. Like, what a load of nonsense. Is is that not is that not ridiculous? And as well, I'm sorry, was the meat industry not talking about food miles like the other week when we're when we're looking at, oh, local councils shouldn't just be serving plant-based food. We we should be serving meat at our our local council events because it's produced next door at our local farm, so it's got really low food miles. But interestingly, when when the meat industry needs to subsidise itself by exporting to other countries because meat demand is going down in this country, now we're looking at supply in the Middle East. Interestingly, food miles doesn't come up in the conversation very much, does it? Funny that. Now, it's a, it's a, it's a load of old tosh, and I'm glad we're featuring stories like this because, like you say, Richard, it, it shows how desperate these industries are that they're, they're, they're so blatantly contradicting themselves and going to quite desperate means. I mean, really, shipping your product halfway around the world at a climate conference, that's quite a desperate move, isn't it? It's very desperate. And to add to what you've said, because, yeah, my, how many miles, how many contamination that will, and pollution that will cause, but also raising them in the first place. It's not sustainable, whether it's Scotland or it's the US, or it's Australia. The amount of land needed to raise these sheep is huge. So it's not sustainable, even if you buy local in Scotland. So let's start with that. And obviously, yeah. we're not talking about the we're not talking about the ethics of it. There's no mention. It it you know what what re, what really disgusting under my point of view. It says decision makers about the taste of of it of the lamb. So they're not, we're talking in a conference about climate change. And he says, look how good this tastes. <laughs> this is nonsense. This is nonsense. Really, really disappointed with, with this, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, just to finish, like if ever a vegan is accused of cherry picking their arguments, which, I, you know, I, I've, I've heard leveled at people before saying, oh, you're just looking at this study or you're just looking at it from this point of view. Like, let's just remember this story. 
shall we? Because actually you've got an industry here completely cherry picking what it says to who, completely ignoring arguments that it was making a few days ago to a different group of people. Let's let's just hope it's it's signs of desperation and uh, and it's and it's a sign of greed too, really, isn't it? It's oh look, here's further ways we can make profit from our exploitative industry, basically. But um, we should probably move on, shouldn't we? Right, we need some cheering up. Shall we hear about some animals being freed from an aquarium? Yeah, yeah, sounds good on the face of it, doesn't it? So this is from The Guardian. Romeo and Juliet, the manatees, freed from Florida theme park following campaign. So sounds sounds really positive. You, you're going to hear the context and, and think, oh my goodness, how did it take so long? So the decades-long captivity of two ageing manatees in an ever-deteriorating condition at a Florida theme park will soon thankfully be over after the intervention of federal wildlife authorities and a campaign by animal rights activists for the mammals to be freed. Romeo, a 67-year-old sea cow and a female named Juliet, have been at the Miami Sea Aquarium since 1956, but they are going to be moved to a sanctuary elsewhere, perhaps as early as next week, the US Fish and Wildlife Service have said. So the advocacy group Urgent Seas released a video on X last month, which showed Romeo swimming alone in a tiny and decaying circular tank in a remote non-public area of the park. I did actually see the video myself a couple of weeks ago and then this story has come up this week. Um, Now the pair have been kept apart for months and they were suffering a horrendous captivity according to the group Urgent Seas. Manatees are semi-social animals and suffer psychologically when not living in groups or pairs but Romeo remained alone all the time the tweet said. The tweet was viewed by more than 3.3 million people. Now Obviously, great news that this that these manatees are are being moved to a sanctuary. The Guardian did send multiple requests to the dolphin company and the Miami Sea Aquarium for comment, but unsurprisingly, they did not receive a response. Rich, cause for celebration or a melancholy reminder that actually these animals have been kept in captivity for humans entertainment for basically sixty years. I think this deserves a, a reflection if I'm honest. It is a win whenever an animal is freed. It is a win. I mean, whether it's um, in Miami Sea Aquarium or it's in um, SeaWorld in San Diego, whenever an an animal is freed, that's a a good thing. Definitely too late. But I wonder what the um, underlying rationality for doing this is. Because when you think about it, there's no difference between dolphin in an aquarium, a fish at home, or a bird in a cage. So to be honest, we should be we should be doing the reflection. Should should we not stop lobbying or, or trying to campaign for it until every bird in every cage has been freed? Because yeah, this is all all good, and I love for these manatees that after the gosh, how many years was it? They've been recluded. Fifty six. Fifty fifty six years. Mm. That's a lifetime. But on the other hand, I mean, we should be able to do the the abstract thought of saying there's no difference between that and a bird in a cage singing alone every day without being able to fly, without being able to socialise. So really, it's all about letting animals be free. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And I think, like, in a sense, this is this story has gone the best way it could in that the manatees are being freed and taken to a sanctuary. But actually, I think probably the thing that will stick in most people's minds is the heartbreaking video of it swimming alone in a dirty pool by itself. Like, that's going to be the thing that people remember. And actually, for animal liberation to happen... People need to have images like that in their mind, I would say, or at least the concept of it, because that, I think, I, I hope anyway, is what inspires people to, to act. But anyway, great news for those two, getting some long, long overdue freedom. So just the one remaining story from this week's news now, and it is the latest vegan leather. What's it going to be made of? We've had pineapple, we've had tomato, we've had apple, we've had cabbage, Place your guesses. What's the next one going to be? Richard, reveal to us the answer now. Yes, from The Economist. Stella McCartney partners with Champagne House Verve Clicquot to turn grape waste into luxurious vegan leather. So, this is the news that British designer Stella McCartney and the famous Champagne House Verve Clicquot have partnered to recycle grape waste to make a luxurious vegan leather with sustainability credentials. Now, the Italian biomaterials company Vegea used the byproduct of Verve Clicquot's harvest to develop a grape skin that is said to have 40% lower impact on global warming, as well as 50% reduction in water usage compared to plastic alternatives to leather. The grape leather is made of 80% vegetable, renewable and recycled raw waste. The leather alternative is also said to be free from dangerous and toxic substances. Wow, this is a, this is, you know, how many more materials can, can we get? I mean, what do you think about it? Richard, I, th I think we need to rank them. Okay, so from my, off the top of my head, we have covered on the show, pineapple leather, apple leather, Cabbage leather, tomato leather, mushroom leather, grape leather. What's your favourite? What's your least favourite? Bearing in mind, neither of us have used any of them. Just off the top of our head of, of what we just instinctively feel drawn towards. I'm I'm tempted to say cabbage and apple. Uh, I don't know if it can be made... As your favourite? Yeah, just, just because thinking about it, um, I guess... There's many, many apples that are not cons consumed because of the taste they have. I don't know if they have a special name. So if we can use those to produce leather, it's a win-win because they would, were not going to be eaten anyway. So I'd go with apple for my favorite. Okay, I'm going to go for mushroom as my favorite because I like fungi are just really cool, aren't they? And they, like, they've got all these different properties. So I, I've just got a feeling that the mushroom leather is going to somehow be superhuman and superpower stuff. As much as I admire a vegan alternative, I'm going to put grape leather at the bottom just because I don't want them to subsidize an alcohol company because I'm not a particular fan of alcohol and its effect on the world. So I'm going to I'm going to put grape leather at the bottom, but I'd much rather they use grapes. I like that argument. I'd much rather they use it to make leather than, um, than to go in champagne. Although I've got nothing against grapes in general, I do like a good grape. We're starting to falafel on. I think we probably ought to move on and ask the Enough of the Falafel community out there listening, what are your thoughts on this week's news? Will you be pieing a pair of grape shoes anytime soon? Is the twin study the most compelling evidence yet? 
for plant-based eating. And will any Christmas cracker joke be half as good as the Scottish lamb industry's attempt to promote themselves as the most sustainable food source in the Middle East? Is there anything we've missed? Is there anything we've got completely wrong? Let us know your opinions, like the listeners were about to feature in the second half of the show. Indeed, we'd love to hear from you. And just a reminder, if you spot news or articles that you think would catch our interest, get in touch with us by email at enoughofthefalafel at gmail.com. We're also at Enough of the Falafel on Facebook, Instagram or TikTok, where you can get little sneak previews on the news we're covering in each episode. Give us a follow, you might like it. This show is kindly sponsored by our friends at Fire and Flow Coffee Roasters. And they're such great people. They're offering all enough of the Falafel listeners a cheeky 10% off orders on their online store when using the code FALAFEL10. That's FALAFEL, the number 10. Fire and Flow, a specialty coffee roastery based in the Cotswold with a fully vegan coffee shop on site. Yeah, they're a vegan founded company too. They're run by three friends, Shah, Callum and Phil, and they specialise in roasting and supplying wholesale coffee beans to coffee shops, restaurants, hotels and offices. For the wholesale part of their operations, they work with other businesses to help them get the most out of their coffee offering, with free barista training and full technical support included. The products themselves are the result of their passion for working with skilled and ethical-minded farmers who produce the highest quality beans. Fire and Flow then roast them to perfection in small batches at their roastery in Sirencester, which you can visit at any time Book onto one of their barista courses or roastery tours via their website, fireandflowcoffee.co.uk. While you're there, you can check out the beautiful, fully vegan coffee shop on site. I've been there myself. It's absolutely brilliant. And it's open seven days a week from nine till three. The last time I went, it was a Sunday afternoon. It was glorious. It's just a fab place to hang out and feel good about life. Give them a follow on Instagram to get the latest at fireandflowcoffee. And for those online orders, remember the code exclusively for our brilliant Enough of the Falafel community. That is Falafel10. 10. 10 is 1 and 0. So Falafel10. It's great to hear from Shah and the team at Fire and Flow as part of our community and as well as hearing from them. We want to hear more from our listener comments and emails this week. Now, we don't really have the time to do this every week, but this week we wanted to put aside the second half of the show to discuss a few messages in more detail. Yeah, absolutely. The whole the whole premise of, of our podcast, is, as well as, of course, keeping ourselves informed and educated and developing our own understanding of things in the vegan and animal rights world, is to, to give people opportunities to have their voice heard because we can all learn from each other if we give each other the opportunity to speak and we choose to listen. And whilst not everybody is going to be as happy as myself or Rich or Tom or, or Kirsch or any of the other guests we've got coming up on the show to, to actually be on the show, perhaps writing in an email or posting a comment on Instagram or something is one way for you to, to get your, your voice out there because it's, it's important it has the opportunity to be listened to. Okay, let's get things started then. Anthony, do you want to read the first featured email? Yeah, yeah, this one's from Gina and she writes, I've not quite got to the end of this week's episode yet. This is from a few weeks ago, as you'll hear. As always, it's very thought-provoking and interesting. 
Just one comment though, the piece about the plant-based hotel. Were you possibly a bit sceptical? Nonetheless, even if the hotel listened to the episode, they might still be glad of the publicity, especially if it's ongoing. I was thinking about it some more and thinking that it may be unrealistic to expect them to have absolutely no animal product at all. It will surely take them time and money to replace any feather pillows, leather sofas, wool carpets, etc. The same would be true for any vegan. There may even be an environmental argument for not replacing those things until they wear out. Anyway, thanks for the podcast. Great work. Rich, what are your thoughts on this one? Well, I think I think Gina makes a point here where it's not cheap to replace every single thing you have. And I guess most of uh, us vegans, when we went vegan, we didn't just overnight change everything we had that containing animal products. Call it a leather sofa, call it leather shoes. Um, it takes... I mean, if you have a lot, lot of money, maybe you're in a position where you can do this. But if not, I understand that it can be difficult. So, yeah, I think spot on. I, I think it's difficult, though. I, I mean, I'm, I certainly would not be, for, for, for many different reasons, expecting a hotel to immediately replace all of its things. But there is a difference if you're calling yourself vegan. I don't know. It's, it, it, I think it's maybe different from a person calling themselves vegan. We, we think more in terms of their intention, I, I, I would say anyway. Whereas as soon as you're sort of buying from a company and the company is saying we are vegan, there's kind of an assumption, I think, that everything about it is therefore vegan. What, and I don't know whether that should be the case. Should we be should we be looking at companies in the same way that we look at people in, in terms of it being about the intention If the intention of the hotel is to be as vegan as it can be, then actually there might be wool carpets for a little while. But I don't know. I just think there's part of me. It, it I, I feel harsh saying so, but I, I do think it's different. If you're saying this is a vegan hotel and there's leather sofas, I don't know if it's just, maybe it's a trades description thing or something. The thing is, there's two different elements here. One, there's certain things that probably you need to replace in your business to be able to call yourself a vegan business. And therefore, if you're a customer and you, you know, you stay at a hotel that's so that's called vegan, you picture yourself having vegan sofas. I mean, no animal products whatsoever. I do understand the need for transition and probably there's certain elements like sofa, pillows, obviously food that need to be vegan. There's other things that might not have to be vegan to call yourself a vegan company. And what I mean by that is I think not all glue is vegan, but mm. you wouldn't go to the extent of removing all the glue <laughs> Because if not, you can't consider yourself vegan, yeah. a vegan company. And on the other hand, you call yourself vegan as an individual, despite having a vegan sofa, probably. Mm. You wouldn't go and say, no, I'm not vegan because I have a leather jacket that I bought 10 years ago in my wardrobe. Mm. You'd call yourself a vegan. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, it, it's all about to what extent you make sure you are as vegan as possible as a company mm. Without saying, because you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't say, no, we're not vegan because of the glue or we're not mm. vegan because we used, we used cash and in the premises we hold five pound notes. Mm. 
So therefore, we're not a vegan company. So it all depends on the degree you look at it, right? Yeah, and I, th I think in a sense, like this hotel, in a sense, this isn't the thing we should be focusing on because actually they're being groundbreaking. They're, they're the first in England to be a, a, a vegan hotel or to identify as such, and, and that should be our focus. I think the fact that they've got so much publicity means that it's going to be a very, very harsh vegan who goes there and is unhappy that there's a feather pillow or a, a leather sofa or whatever at this stage in the game because they, they ought to have an awareness that, well, this is quite a recent transition. If I went there in 10 years and the feather pillows hadn't been replaced, I don't know. I think probably a pillow does wear out in, in 10 years. So perhaps as things wear out, replacing them with, with vegan versions is, is the way to go probably, isn't it? But um, yeah, thanks for the email, Gina, and uh, some, some great points there. Okay, let's move on, Anthony. We've got an Insta comment about our feature on silent fireworks. Yeah, so as a reminder, we're on Instagram at enough of the falafel. And this comment came on Instagram from Alex, who said, I did a brief Google search and it looks like a typical fireworks display costs £1,000 to £3,000, and that is for a 10-minute display. Whereas a company who does drone displays charges £9,000 for a 20-minute drone display featuring 20 drones. In comparison, though, the image you've included, and this is on our Instagram post, has probably many hundreds of drones. Perhaps it's a solution for the future, but at the moment, I don't think they're accessible enough. Rich, do you think that's a fair comment, that money seems to be a bit of a barrier to this really taking off at the moment? <laughs> Pardon the pun. Yes, I think this is a very val valid point. I think with all technologies, there's the entry-level barrier where new technology emerges. It's always very expensive and only the early adopters will pay for it. I remember when TV screens went from the, the tube ones, I guess they were called, to flat screens. They were really expensive, thousands and thousands of pounds. It's normal that at the beginning, new technology is expensive. As it goes mainstream, it will decrease in price and probably there's an, an initial investment needed to to start doing these things and therefore they need to charge more. I think it's a very valid, valid point. What, what I would say is if really money is such a problem for certain councils or places in the world to do the drone, my option would be not to do the firework one either. But that's just my opinion. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'd be very interested to talk to people who've been to a drone display because... My thought would be like if, if my local village, instead of offering a firework display, offered a drone display, I'd pay three times as much to get in. Like I, I'm, I'm not made of money, but like I, I think the last fireworks display I went to was a fiver on the door. So if, if someone said, oh, there's a drone display instead of the fireworks and it cost £15, I'd pay three times as much to get in. And be part of that. And I would have thought you'd have a really good feeling about yourself, that you're contributing to something that's a lot more sustainable, a lot more friendly to animals, and just generally a good future-proof thing. I mean, like, drones are reusable as well. So in terms of the money we're spending, I can see why companies are charging that much now. But surely... In five years' time, assuming their drones haven't been attacked by seagulls, they're still going to have them and they're still going to be able to to use them, and and so the cost ought to come down. But I, I do I do get Alex's point that like actually for now 
if you're a, a local village or whatever and you're saying, oh, should we put on one of these drone shows? Oh, no, we've just simply not got the money for it. But some people out there have got that money, haven't they? Yes, and I, I think it's a very valid point, again, because it, it's a huge cost nowadays compared to traditional fireworks. But, uh, yeah, it, it's the same with meat substitutes. I guess they were a bit more expensive in the past than now. They're still expensive, but as more and more people use them, probably the price will go down. So let's hope that that's what happens in the future. Can I just check in, Rich? In today's episode, you have compared drones to meat substitutes and that the marketing industry and pension schemes have been compared. Yes. You're just all over the similes this week. I'm really enjoying it. (laughs) I know, I know. It's have a weird mind. I, I need to admit that. Okay, let's go to our third and final bit of correspondence then. Yeah, this is an email from Derek. It's a nice chunky one, so get comfortable, but it makes for some interesting listening. Derek writes the following. I've been listening through and enjoying all the podcasts as I've been driving around between jobs over the last two or three weeks. I felt inclined to contribute as there are a few things that have made me want to speak up. My family went to vegan camp out last year and I came back inspired to act. If anyone hasn't been yet, I highly recommend it. I'd gone to the festival thinking that the talks weren't for me and I would just take the vibe and enjoy the music and food. But I ended up listening to speakers like Tash Peterson and Joey Carbstrong and I felt different. Your guests one week disagreed with glass-walled abattoirs and showing people graphic images. One guest hadn't seen any documentaries as he said he didn't need to. These had been my views to a point. But after vegan camp out, I felt I needed to metaphorically shout from the rooftops about the conditions people keep animals in and the way they are treated. I am now unapologetic for the information I share and I strongly believe that we shouldn't be making it comfortable for people to go about their day-to-day lives and ignoring the truth. By learning more and hearing more about the horrors that go on, I was empowered to act myself. Unfortunately, I have other responsibilities, so I can't do much, and that is frustrating, as I feel like I should do more, so the least I can do is to try and let people see what their actions are contributing to. Most of the people I connect with on Facebook are generally nice people, and I think I try and choose articles and images that will confront their own actions and will make them have to question what the falafel they are doing. I've actually bumped into a guy I don't know that well that has told me to carry on, as he is learning things he didn't know and another couple of people have got in touch to say they are gradually changing their outlook and spending patterns and have been directly influenced by some of the things I have posted. People shouldn't be allowed to hide away in their cosy little lives blissfully unaware of the horrors they contribute to and as for showing images to children I happen to agree with the cube direct action and if kids see something shocking then their meat-eating parents are going to have to try and justify it. I'm sorry for those vegan children who don't need to see it, but there's a much bigger and more urgent story of animal abuse and suffering that needs to be addressed first. Thanks very much for making a podcast I wasn't aware I wanted to hear. You have 13 minutes to respond. Your time starts now. That 13 minutes is reference to my uh, email response time, which I advertised uh, a few weeks ago. I'm sorry to say it took me more like 19 or 20 hours to respond to Derek but I'm going to blame being at work and needing to sleep on that so several points there Richard for us to to chew on where where do you want to start well I want to start saying 
that I think that it has a very good point and I do fully agree and understand what he says and means. Well, sorry, which point? He made lots. Which one? <laughs> about the need to not make not, not making people, not making it easy for people to ignore the horrors that happen behind the scenes. I think this is, a, I really agree and I think is a very valid point because we can't make it comfortable for people to just ignore the reality of what's happening. And we see that a lot where, unfortunately, we live in a society where it's very easy to turn a blind, blind eye in on those things that we don't want to know. So that's a very, very valid point. There is a difference, though, isn't there, between letting people be completely comfortable versus deliberately making them very uncomfortable repeatedly, isn't there? And and there's a, that's a continuum, and it, it, it's surely about deciding where we where we draw the line, where we think an acceptable degree of comfort or discomfort is, isn't it? Because if you're, if you're harassing your next door neighbour every day and not letting them sleep because of the horrors that are happening to animals, you're probably going too far, aren't um, you? Sorry. So it's, it's, it's how comfortable are we, how comfortable are we, are we letting people be? <laughs> I, I see it as, for me, the line, I understand the concept of the line and obviously there's things you can't do. You can't harass people. I mean, we would never do that. But it's it's thinking about what's more effective rather than what's the best way we can communicate the message and for that message to be perceived in a positive way. Now, for some people that might be images and for the people might be a talk for the people might be many different reasons. I mean, the thing about this point of view is it um, acts about the moral implications of what we human do to animals. Unfortunately, um, I wish that was true where people would act because of moral reasoning, but some people will only act for health and some people will only act for the environment, which I know that it, it is a bit frustrating because you think, yeah, you're thinking about your health, but and that's good because that means you might not be eating animal products. But I guess for many vegans, we would we, we, we really would wish for other people to change on on moral ground rather than other other things, right? Yeah, I, you touched on something there in, in terms of effectiveness. And I think if we knew as, as vegans that all we had to do was sit someone down for 60 seconds and explain to them why it's wrong to use and consume animals and then they would change their behaviour, I think we'd all be doing it all the time. And I, 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 I feel that's a fair assumption to make, or at least most most people who are vegan do want other people to be vegan too. So so we would take that 60 second conversation and, and we would do that if it was 100% effective all the time. I think very often people's decisions to not engage with direct activism and not engage with direct action and, and things that are more um, controversial, like showing slaughterhouse footage and, and, and things like that, is because of a perceived ineffectiveness of them or what it costs us as individuals to put ourselves in a position where we're going to potentially get quite a big backlash. And if I'm in a position where I'm worried I'm going to get people shouting at me, and I think it's only going to affect 1% of the people walking past, 
I can understand why people think, do you know what? That's not going to be where I put my resources. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm so delighted that Derek has felt empowered and, and brave enough and strong enough to do to do these things that he's been doing since going to the vegan camp out. And as he's described, it's having a positive effect on people around him. And I imagine, I hope that he's focusing on those things rather than the people who are not being affected. And that's, you know, that's a good mental strategy to use, isn't it? Focus on the positive change you're making, not on the people who are ignoring you. But I do also understand why a lot of people might find it difficult to, to view things in that way. And of course, perhaps our job as vegans, a vegan activist, is to, to find out how we can empower people to, to see past the difficulties and to, to feel courageous enough to do those things. And that's perhaps that's what's so great about people like Tash Peterson and, and Joey Carbstrong that Derek mentions is that they, they do empower us to see past our worries and our fears to do that. But I, I, I do understand why a lot of people think, do you know what, if 99% of people are going to ignore this and I'm going to get a load of flack for it, I'm, I'm not going to put myself in that position. I know, I know Derek's not saying everyone should be doing this, but I can also understand why a lot of people would say, oh, I don't think that's effective. What they're saying is, I don't think it's effective for me, I, w I would have thought. About um, the cube, I think it's really good to have the cube all around, you mm. know, with screens showing what happens. We need people, and I have big, big, great admiration for the cube or anyone that's just sitting on a street with a screen showing the horrors that happen to animals. I think they deserve a lot of credit. I do too. I, I and and but going back to what I just said, I think we have to acknowledge it's not going to work for everybody, so it can't be our only approach, but that shouldn't stop us from from trying it because no no, no approach is 100% effective, is it? Like we need what's the term sort of like a multifaceted approach. We need to come at things from from lots of different angles, don't we? Yeah, and the bottom line is the question we're trying to answer. The last, the, the the ultimate question is, how do you get people to care about others? And that also raises the question: Why don't we care enough about others in general as society? I don't know the answer to that, but if we found a way for people to care about more about other people about animals, wouldn't that be great? Absolutely. That that and and again, that's. Is that coming down? Well, it's it's opening the opening the door to compassion, I suppose, isn't it? As well as empowering. But the, the, the kind of point of empowering, I think, is is my biggest takeaway from from Derek's email. In that he he's mentioned that a guest on the show a few weeks ago said, "I'm vegan. I don't feel I need to to watch these these documentaries." And, and I've heard that from a lot of people. And yet, I've met many people and I, I feel this way myself and Derek seems to feel this way that actually if you do watch a documentary like this it can have the effect that you become really fervently determined to advocate for animals even more and that's got to be a good thing hasn't it? So in my case I've watched many documentaries um, most of them are the mainstream ones like Earthlings, Hope, Sea Spiracy and so on and in my case there's an element of anger after I see them so I feel the need to talk to others 
about it. And let me be clear, that is only my reaction. I'm not saying this is anyone else's reaction, but there's an element of anger to what humanity does to animals. And therefore, I feel more inclined to show those images to other people. But when I've shared images to other people, unfortunately, probably it's not been as changing or it's not been as effective as maybe talking and letting that person make the decision on when they want to see those images. But that's just my experience. There's an element of anger of saying, I need to share this. How on earth can we be doing this to animals? Uh, Everyone needs to see it. And don't get me wrong, everyone needs to see it because everyone should be able to look at what they eat. Everyone should be go to a pub or to a restaurant, look at um, what they're eating and be able to see the process in which food has been made. If you can't watch it, I'd argue you can't really eat it, can you? But that's my experience. Mm, Okay. I don't I don't agree with everything you've said. I, I I believe that everybody should know where their food has come from and I, I think everybody should know in an ideal world everybody should know what is involved in in everything that they use and is part of their lives, you know, the the, the laptop we're, we're talking to one another on now like what's been involved in in getting that to to in front of me now if it's involved you know, modern day slavery, then, well, I, I'm not going to be very happy about it. So there's knowing. I don't necessarily agree with the with the seeing point. I agree that it can have a big effect on lots of people and it's had a big effect on me seeing it. However, some people can be especially sensitive and, and, and actually that's nothing to do with the thing that they're seeing. It, it's to do with their own neurology and, and who they are as a person. And actually that's different to knowing the reality, isn't it? Really, so long as we know the reality. What do you mean? What I mean is we're all animals, okay? We're, we're all made up of, of skin and nerves and neurons and, th- and things like that. And the way that we interact with the world is is different. You know, s- some of us are more thick-skinned than others and some of us are more sensitive than others. And, and that is simply just a physiological way that we respond to the things that are around us. And you could line up 10 people and they could all watch the same thing or they could all experience the same thing and the way that they would respond would be very different. There are a proportion of people, a significant proportion of people in the world who seeing things that are especially upsetting, it doesn't compel them to change how they behave. It doesn't compel them to have any cognitive processing. Their only response is a neurological one. It's a nervous system reaction. It's fear. It's overwhelm. And that's not going to change how they behave. It's going to shock them. It's going to make them not want to watch it ever again or go anywhere near it or even talk about it. And if we're doing that as part of our vegan advocacy for that group of people, then I believe we're failing the animals because we're, we're turning people away from even wanting to discuss it. Now, that is not everyone. And, and a big proportion of people will see the same thing and their response will be a moral one and it will be a cognitive one and there will be emotion in there and, 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 and people can reason more with these things. What I'm saying is I, I disagree with the principle that everyone needs to see this because if everyone sees this and is made to see it, a proportion of people will be so shocked and appalled and and go into denial or go into trauma or, or like, I can't deal with this, that that's not helping the animals. And, and actually, it, it's difficult because we don't know, we don't always know who these people are. 
but actually there's a proportion of people who I think can engage with these things in a more softer, maybe verbal approach, conversations, meeting people where they are, rather than doing this this quite big statement piece of I'm going to make you watch this. And I think that's I think that's my issue with a kind of wholesale 100% usage of, of, of this kind of media is that it really isn't for everybody. And but I equally acknowledge that some people will say, oh, no, that's not for me. I'd, I, I, I won't want to watch that. And actually, they're using that as an excuse. And I do think that is the case for some people. But for some people, it genuinely would be too much. And it would it would completely disengage them, I believe. I guess as a conclusion, I think the good thing is that there's many approaches nowadays. So mm. there's some people that are showing graphical images. There's people brave enough to just do undercover investigation, mm. to do all the documentaries that we see. There's people that are very good at just talking with a very compassionate and engaging way to other f- uh, people and just having those difficult conversations from an emotional point of view in a calm way. There's people that are doing research about health. We've got people doing research about the environment. So I guess we're tackling the issue from so many different angles that one way or another, it's easy for someone to end up resonating with one of the messages. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the good thing about it, that we should be a a more united movement, but we can use lots of approaches to reach people because everyone will be moved by a different story and by a different reasoning. Yeah, absolutely. And and united is is a great word there because actually we can be united in, in what we want to achieve, but actually go about it in different ways. And I think that's really important. United doesn't mean we all do the same thing. It might mean that we all want the same outcome. It means that we share the same mission. Yeah, yeah. Or the same vision. Yeah. And end goal. And, and and you know what? I think we need to acknowledge that not all vegans have, have the same outcomes in mind or or, or 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 vision for things. There's a lot of crossover, but then they're not all the same. But that that that's okay. But yeah, going about things like you say, Rich, using all those different tools, those different motivations. That's really important. I, I think my biggest takeaway from Derek's experience and Derek's email is that actually being open to change and being open to learning and being open to different viewpoints, because that's that's what he's that's what he's experienced, isn't it? He's gone into vegan camp out thinking, this is how I'm going to experience this weekend. These are my opinions on these things. And then he's opened his mind to go to a couple of talks and actually his his mind and his outlook have been changed. And and I hope that will continue to happen for him and for all of us, that we continue to be open to to changing our mind on things and entertaining different possibilities and, and continuing to raise our awareness. That's That's the best tool we've got for the animals, isn't it? actually is continuing our evolution because that's that's how we're going to get to the the best ways to advocating for them amen let's leave things here shall we i think you know it's been a good experience doing the mailbag so i would encourage everyone that has a question or wants us to discuss something or wants to you know to raise any questions that 
potentially we could uh, discuss, talk about, please do it. Please send an email to enoughofthefalafel at gmail.com because we're thinking about every 10, 12 episodes maybe we'll do, instead of the normal discussion, just a mailbag common discussion about the things that bother you in, in, in a real-life scenario or your concerns, your thoughts. Anyway, just check it our way and we'll talk about it. Absolutely. And that does apply to our social feed as well. So we're on TikTok, Instagram and Facebook, all of which it's at enough of the falafel. Like it doesn't have to be a big, um, long, thoughtful email like Derek's. You can just leave a couple of comments on on an Instagram post or something like that. Um, It's all good stuff. Right, we're almost at the end of the episode now. Anthony, thanks for being here and sharing your thoughts with us. A pleasure as always. Richard, you're not with us next week, are you? No, I'm not. But you're being joined by Josie and Kate and possibly one of the guests, so I know you'll have a great time without me. Yeah, we'll do our best. We'll, we'll miss you very much, though, and we'll look forward to welcoming you back the following week. Indeed. Anyway, that's enough of the falafel from us this week. Thank you everyone for listening. I've been Richard. I've been Anthony. And this has been episode 12 of Vegan Week. <laughs>